Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. World War II was the most widespread and devastating war that our world has ever seen. It involved over 100 million people. By August 1945, the long and bloody conflict was finally over. Now, my wife's grandfather was a man called Wilf Chambers, and when the war broke out, he responded to the call to fight for king and country. He was one of the first to sign up. He was 22 years old. He joined the army. He fought in Holland and Belgium and France, and then in 1944, he joined the commandos. This was the frontline group spearheading the invasions in Europe. And at times he would sleep on the ground and rats ran over his body. Now, finally the war was won. And after the victory, Wilf's group and many others liberated people. They went into concentration camps and liberated Jewish people who'd been imprisoned there and starved. And he actually saw starving people run out of their... uh, enclosure and run to the nearest rubbish bin and start searching through it for some food because they were so hungry and they would grab anything they could find that was vaguely edible but some of them then died quickly because their bodies couldn't handle the food so Wilf and other soldiers like him had to help people acclimatize to being free again he traveled from place to place liberating people so the war was won but they had to make sure that the benefits of the victory were applied. You see, the victory was secure, but it had to be applied. And rolling out the victory took care and dedication. Now, this is a picture of life as a Christian. The decisive victory is won. Jesus has won the victory. There it is in in verse 1. Therefore, he's summarizing everything he's been saying so far in the letter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. Jesus has won the victory on the cross through his resurrection. There is no condemnation. You're completely free. You're completely accepted if you trust Jesus and follow him. And we're now under a new government. We're serving a new king. But we need to take action if we're going to live free from the old tyranny, the old way of life known as sin. Now, this sermon series we have at the moment, there's the slide, which Greg uh, designed for us. This series, which is called Newness of Life, is all about what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to live as a person who's been born again, who's been given new birth? What should our experience of the Christian life be like? When you become a Christian, and some of you are, are thinking about that and investigating the faith, when you become a Christian, what actually changes? And we started this series with a, a, a newspaper report from a French family, true story, they went up into the loft one day, the loft was leaking, and they went up to find out where the leak was, and they found a painting that had been in the loft for more than 150 years, thought to be a lost masterpiece by the Italian Renaissance genius Caravaggio, a painting of Judith and Holofernes, and the painting was valued at about 90 million pounds. Nine zero, 90 million pounds, just up in the loft, didn't know it was there. And we ask this question, if you were in possession of a treasure, if you were in possession of something truly life-changing, what would you do about it? Of course you know what you would do. You would take vigorous steps to seize the benefits. 
you take vigorous steps to seize the benefits. And this series is all about that for us followers of Jesus. It's the same with the Christian life. Christians must take steps to seize and apply what's already been given to them in Jesus and the good news about him. Otherwise, we will always live in the shallows. Let's live a full Christian life, not half of one. So the key phrase we're thinking about is newness of life, a new way of life. How do we get it? How do we become renewed inside? How do we become a walk in this new life that Jesus has for us? Well, first thing we've learned is that you, you start out by realizing just how sinful and wicked you are. That's the precondition to any kind of renewal, is that we realize just how sinful we are, and we've plumbed some of the depths of that. And when you're in the depths and seeing how wicked you are, you also then see just how holy and awesome and pure God is. He's absolute moral perfection. When God ever comes into contact with sinful people in the Bible, the earth shakes and the people fall on the ground and they want him to go away. Hanging out with God is not fun. You wouldn't invite God to your beer tasting event. You would fall on your face. So you realize that you're absolutely hopeless. Isaiah, the prophet, saw God in the temple. So, so immense was the vision that it was as if the, the bottom of God's hem, just, just the hem filled the room. And there he was seated on the throne. And Isaiah's first reaction is to say, Woe to me, I'm an unclean man. I've got unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Go away from me. And yet God speaks a word of mercy to him. Because the third thing that helps you get this new life is seeing and understanding the work of the Redeemer, Jesus who comes to sinful, wicked people and assures them of his love to the uttermost. He loved you even to death on a cross, as we've already sung and reflected on this morning. So you can then start every day by saying, I am accepted. I'm accepted. I'm saved by faith. I don't actually have to earn it at all. I couldn't earn it. I'm more wicked than I ever realized, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to imagine. You grasp hold of that new justification, being made right, and you start to live in the light of it. And then you start to apply that good news to every single area of your life, and it's like the light breaking in on a dark and dingy house. And you start cleaning the house and cleaning the rooms and renovating the whole of life as you realize that in Jesus you are free. You start every new day with these words, I'm accepted in Jesus, and I'm free, not bound by the old way of life. And now thirdly, as we move into Romans chapter 8, we need to learn about the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't live a full Christian life without understanding the Holy Spirit and living in the light of his work and living in his presence. We need to understand who he is. We need to understand what he does. And we need to live in conscious recognition of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and our hearts. He is so important He's so important. Turn with me if you want to, John chapter 14. If you've got your church Bibles there, it's page 1082. Page 1082. I'm sorry, I haven't got the Chinese page number. Listen to what the Lord Jesus himself says about the Holy Spirit. And this is a farewell um, message that he gives to his disciples. He's comforting them. He's told them he's going to leave them soon. And they're feeling heartbroken and he gives them these comforting words. And here's what he promises them in John 14, verse 15 to 18. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. 
and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I'm about to leave you, and I'm going to just give you this parting shot. Keep my commands. Wow. It's a pretty significant challenge from Jesus. If you love me, you're going to keep my commands, aren't you? How are they going to do it? Because they're going to have a helper. The Spirit. Jesus immediately promises this strong helper, this advocate who's going to come, and he'll be with them, and he says, even says, he will be in you, be in, in your personality, inside you, in your soul will be God drawing alongside you, and he is the spirit of Jesus. In other words, this is how Jesus is with us now, by the living Holy Spirit who comes when you trust Jesus and dwells in your heart. So if you're a Christian here, in the depths of your consciousness, the roots of your personality, in the center of who you are is the Holy Spirit of God. If you're born again, this is true of you. It doesn't matter how you feel doesn't matter if you feel particularly sinful today. It doesn't matter if you've had a bad week or you're feeling tired. It doesn't matter if you're feeling joyful or suffering. He's with you. You can't shake him off. No matter how your life's going, you don't need a special experience or a second blessing. The Holy Spirit is given to you the moment you trust in God, Jesus Christ. You're born again by the Spirit. So we can't live the full Christian life without knowing more about this. What does the Holy Spirit do? It's essential to grasp it so that we start each day saying, I'm accepted, I'm free, and I'm not alone in the fight against sin because the Holy Spirit is here with me. But as soon as we start talking about the Holy Spirit, if you've been around churches for any length of time, you'll know that there's a lot of confusion out there about the Spirit. And over the years, I've seen two kind of opposite tendencies about the Holy Spirit in churches. One group tend to make too much of the Holy Spirit and to import a load of stuff that isn't true about him. And another group tend to make far too little of the Holy Spirit. Let me sort of describe how this pans out and you see if you recognize it. Now, one group are very serious about order. They are nervous about emotionalism and excess. They like truth. They are passionate about doctrinal correctness, right? You've heard of political correctness, PC? These people are into DC, doctrinal correctness. And they see some wild, woolly stuff going on that other people do in the name of the Holy Spirit, and they are deeply concerned about it. And so they basically respond by avoiding thinking about the Holy Spirit too much, sort of go into denial about him. J.D. Greer says that some Christians believe in the Holy Spirit but they relate to him the same way I relate to my pituitary gland. (laughs) I'm really grateful it's in there. I know it's essential for something. I would never want to lose it, but I don't really interact with it. (laughs) For these Christians, the Holy Spirit is not a moving, dynamic person. He's more of a theory. Now, the other groups see this, and rightly, they reject it. They recognize there's a problem. But sometimes, because they want to engage with the Holy Spirit and engage with his work, they fill the Holy Spirit vacuum with all sorts of ideas and experiences and concepts and traditions that don't necessarily come from the Bible. So the first group is really strong on order, and the second group is strong on ardor. 
passion. Can you feel it? But whereas the first group can be too rational, rationalistic, dry, and even dead, the second group can be misled into wrong emphases. One group treats the spirit like a pituitary gland. The other treats him like a crazy rock star, a celebrity. But both groups are actually being unbiblical. Both have some strengths, and both contribute something to the body of Christ. And sadly, they do tend both to mistrust each other. We've got to be able to learn from each other. Somebody a few years ago said, do you know that your church, there are some people in this city who believe, think you don't believe in the Holy Spirit? Wow. <laughs> we tend to mistrust each other. But you know, there is a third way here, which is biblical balance. And that's what we're going to be focusing on, not just this week, but hopefully, God willing, for three weeks, so that we can really get into understanding how the Holy Spirit works and his impact on the Christian life. And Romans chapter 8, finally getting there, is possibly the most important chapter on the subject. So at least three weeks on this. Um, today, just we're going to focus on verses 1 to 13. And here we learn that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. He's the spirit of life. Look with me in your Bible there on, in chapter 8, page 1134, verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he brings a whole new way of life. You live according to the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So the Spirit brings a new kind of mind. Verse 10, he brings Christians to life. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And he guarantees us a future resurrection life in a new body. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. The spirit of life gives a new mind of life, a new way of life, and a promise of a glorious, resurrected, living body in the future. Okay? Spirit of life. Now, here, I think in this first part, verses 1 to 13, we learn three main things. And we're going to go through them quite quickly today because we've got the Lord's Supper as well. Three main things we learn about the Spirit's work of how he gives life and how he sustains spiritual life in us. All right? You, you with me? Still with, with me? Melissa's still with me? Anyone else? Yes, William, it's all family members. Okay, the Holy Spirit does three things. He liberates, he concentrates, and he annihilates. He liberates, concentrates, and annihilates. Firstly, he liberates, verse 2 to 4, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He set you free. That's what he does. He liberates people from the old principle and the old power of sin and death. Now just think with me for a moment about two scenarios. Um, they're sadly going to be quite familiar to you, but I want you to think um, not in a judgmental way, but in a kind of analytical way about what's going on in the heart of the person in these two scenarios. The first scenario is a man in a hotel room, and the second is a girl in a classroom. So firstly, a man in a hotel room, maybe he's away on business, He's apart from his family, he's a married man, and there he is, he's had a long day, he's tired, and he goes back to the hotel, has a dinner, a glass of wine, 
and he goes up to his hotel room to chill out, and he's, he's bored, he's tired, feeling a bit um, weary, and so he is there alone. Nobody else can see what he's doing. No one can track him. He's completely free at that moment to do what he likes. So there he is, and in his hotel room, at that moment, he makes a choice to switch on the TV in the hotel room and to watch pornography. And as he's in the room, for an hour or so, he indulges in the most filthy, squalid entertainment. And then he switches it off, and he feels pretty grimy. Doesn't sleep that well, it's tossing and turning. Something inside him feels like it's been set on fire. But nobody else knows about it. So the next day he gets up, checks out the hotel, goes home. Wife thinks he's acting a bit funny, but he never says anything to anyone about it. What has he just done? Why did he do it? Second scenario is a girl in a classroom. This girl's a teenager. She's learned early in life that you know, there's several groups at school. There's the cool insiders, the uncool outsiders, and the untouchables. You know, we think the Indian people are the only ones with the caste system. You've got the cool insiders, the uncool outsiders, and the untouchables, and she desperately, desperately wants to be one of the cool insiders. She'll do anything to be there. But there's this other girl who is taller, prettier, a lovely personality, popular, and quite bright. So this girl is bent on destroying the other one. She will do it through all her um, feminine wile, wiles and, and sophisticated relational strategies. She can tear down the other girl's reputation. She will um, malign her, slander her. She basically driven by sheer envy and jealousy. She wants to exclude the other girl and to see her fall so that she can be on the inside. She sets up a party, and the only person in the whole class she doesn't invite is that girl. What is she doing? Why does she live like that? What's behind it? What's underneath it? Think about that man in the hotel room. Think about the girl in the classroom. Are they free? Now, they're obviously free agents. They can do what they like. Nobody's controlling them. They're not puppets. But you can tell, can't you, that they're not free people. They're not, their life isn't leading them to freedom and joy. In fact, it's leading them into more and more bondage, and their whole world is sort of turning in on them. Now, the Bible would say that they are dominated by something called the flesh. The flesh. Here it is in our chapter. Look at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Now, what is this flesh? It certainly isn't the physical body. The Bible's really positive about bodies. Okay, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, full of positivity about the physical world. We don't have any of the Greek idea that the body's a sort of prison house that the soul has to escape from. No, the body's good, so it's not this kind of physical flesh. You've actually, the people who translated our Bible here were so keen for us to understand it, they even put a special little footnote in there. If you can see, if you've got good enough eyesight, down at the bottom, uh, there's a little footnote, B3, can you see that? In contexts like this, the Greek word for flesh, which is sarx, refers to the sinful state of human beings often presented as a power in opposition to the spirit. What is this flesh? It's the whole of our humanity that's corrupted. 
and unredeemed. It's the sin-dominated self. The sin-dominated self. Martin Luther used to say it was, the, it was human nature curved in on itself. That man in the hotel room watching the porn channels, that girl in the classroom consumed by envy and jealousy are not free. They are dominated by the flesh, the sin-dominated self that curves in on itself. And the Bible says that gives them a problem on at least two levels. The first is judicial, and the other is experiential. Judicial, it gives us a problem with God's law. You know the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the house of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. And there's ten commandments there that lay out God's moral vision for human life. Now just think about the commandments that that man broke in the hotel room. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Well, in his mind and his heart, he fully engaged with adultery, with lust for other women. But in order to do that, he also had to covet something that wasn't his because he has his own wife back at home. But he's now longing for some other women. So he's broken the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And then when he gets home and his wife says, you're in a bit of a funny mood, why are you like this? He then has to break another commandment, you shall not lie or bear false witness. And you know, you never break any of the other commandments without breaking the first one, which is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, if you believe that God is God and that he's good and that he's got your back, that he loves you and that his way of life is the best possible way of life and therefore you should joyfully walk in it and be an obedient to God, then of course you wouldn't break any of the other commandments. So people only break God's commandments when they doubt that he's good. So you've already broken at least four commandments there. Tracking with me? It's apply the same logic to the girl. There's a judicial problem. We've broken God's standard. But think about the inner experience of the person. What's the experience of breaking God's law? For that girl who is trying to achieve popularity by tearing somebody else down. How's it working out for her? She probably feels ashamed. She probably feels quite guilty. In her best moments, she'll wish she'd never started it. And even if she does get on the inside of the group of cool insiders, how long is she going to be there for? She's being driven by insecurity. She's so anxious. She's looking over her back the whole time and trying to manipulate things to be accepted. Because she doesn't believe that God loves her either. So you never break God's law without breaking yourself. You never break God's laws without breaking yourself as well. And that's how we all are by nature. We're dominated by this flesh, this self, sin-dominated self, making ourselves the center of everything, ruled by passions and pleasures. And as we go along, getting more and more, getting smaller and smaller until our humanity is being bunched up. And the Holy Spirit, it says here, comes to set you free. He comes to liberate us from all of that, from all of that old way of life. The Spirit comes to set you free. Verse Three, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. See, what Paul is doing here is a little uh, nutshell description of the good news, the gospel. The gospel's a news report about what God has done in Jesus. And here it says that Jesus, God sent 
His own son, he sent him from heaven. Jesus came, the son of God, came into our world and joined himself to an unfertilized egg in a young virgin's womb. She was called Mary. And there he became a full human being. Just like you and me in every way, except for our sin. So he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he wasn't sinful. But he was fully enfleshed. The theological word is incarnate. He came into our world and became one of us. And he did it, it says here, to be a sin offering. This is a word from the Old Testament. It's a phrase that meant an animal that was a substitute for somebody else that would take their punishment and would be offered up and destroyed, killed and destroyed, in order to clean the conscience and the record of the worshiper. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And in that action, he took away all your bad track record. He took away every sin you've ever committed and ever will do. If you follow him, he's taken it away. And so the Holy Spirit's work is to come and bring that message to us and bring it to our hearts. And first of all, he does it by convicting us and making us see the reality of our need of God. And then he brings us to a point where we trust Jesus and he takes us by the hand and then he leads us into a new way of life where we walk in a a complete awareness of what Jesus has done and we follow him, not follow ourselves. So the Spirit comes bringing the gospel and setting us free. And now, verse 4 says, that the righteous requirement of God's law is fully met in us. Have a look at it with me, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, what is this righteous requirement of the law? The law here means God's law, as revealed in the Old Testament. And Jesus at one point was asked, well, what's the most important commandment? And he said, well, the most important commandment is this. And he quoted from the book of Leviticus. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If you keep those two commandments, you kept the whole law. So it's a law of love. And now... Paul says, the Holy Spirit comes to you, Christian friend, to help you keep that law so that you become a person who is more and more a person of love, a lover of God and a lover of other people. The righteous requirement of the law is now met in you because the Spirit is in you, liberating you from living for the flesh and freeing you and empowering you to live for God wholeheartedly and joyfully. We're set free in order to live a holy life. So we're now in a new dynamic relationship to God and to his standards. Sin no longer tastes good, does it? You notice that? Sin no longer tastes good. Righteousness tastes good. I was going to ask my wife's permission to use this illustration, but I didn't get time this morning. She said I can. See that? Got permission. You all heard it. My wife has had an on-off relationship with sugar for many years. I think it's probably could be called a love-hate relationship with sugar. An idol. An idol. All right. Now, recently she decided to draw a line and she was done with sugar. Sugar was no longer going to rule over her. She ditched it and walked away and decided to live a new life that was a sugar-free life. And I'll tell you, a few days of cold turkey were pretty hard for all of us. <laughs> it was like living with a heroin addict. 
don't have to lock her in a room, you know, put water in there. But, but after the, going through that, wow, the change now that sugar was gone. Energy levels much more consistent. Not the same up and down throughout the day, craving for sugar. Losing weight far more easily. Doesn't she look good? <laughs> and curiously, better overall health. Melissa's hardly been ill since she gave up sugar. I don't know what the science is behind that. I'm sure some of you do. But here's the interesting thing. Sugar no longer tastes good. If she does pick up a bit of chocolate, she's like, oh, this is so sweet, because she's lost her taste for it. Now, God's Holy Spirit comes to give you a new heart that wants to obey and please God, so that you lose the taste for sin, and you start to get a taste for righteousness. This is promised way back in, by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 of his, his letter, Let me, his prophecy. This is what he, he wrote. I will, this is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. New Testament says that uh, even prophets long to look into the things that the church has now received. But those things were reserved for us. We now understand how God was going to give us a new heart of flesh and move us to want to keep his commands and love him and to really live because we've gained that through Jesus' death, resurrection, and sending the Spirit to be with us. The Holy Spirit comes to liberate. Don't worry, these points get quicker, okay? <laughs> People are thinking, I thought you said it was going to be faster. The Spirit comes to liberate you, so join in with him, participate with him in the work of liberation, rolling out the benefits of the victory Jesus has achieved. I want to give you a gross picture at this point. A number of years ago, a friend of mine asked me to look after his dog. His dog was called Tyson. It was a big, muscular, forceful beast. The deal was I had to stay in my friend's house for a week while he was away. I'm not really a dog person. And walk this dog twice a day and make sure he was fed and all the rest of it. So I, I, by about day three, I was absolutely sick of this dog. I think it was pretty needy. It always wanted to be with me all the time. It would come outside the door in the morning and kind of go, like, oh, give me a break. And then the, to, to cap it all, the dog chundered. It threw up. Circle of vomit on the carpet, and I was like, oh, no. And then I looked down, and he was eating it. And I was like, is this week going to get any worse? Now, the new t I know it's gross, but then the Bible says that a Christian who goes back to their old sins is like a dog returning to their vomit. Friends, lose the taste for it. <laughs> All right, you're saying, I, 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 I agree with it, but How? I just seem to struggle with sin, and sometimes I feel like I never get anywhere. How do you make progress in the life of faith? Two strategies are held out for us here. Concentration and annihilation. So concentration, verses 5 to 8. Read with me. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So here is about the mind. Now, Christianity and Christians are sometimes critiqued unfairly for being completely irrational, for not paying sufficient attention to the mind. But actually, it's an untrue criticism. The Bible is all about the mind and the understanding. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. So we have a reasonable faith. And this text here shows that there are two basic mindsets. One is the mind governed by the flesh, which we've already thought about, the sin-dominated self. And the other is a mind that's governed by God's Holy Spirit. One will be dominated by the twisted human nature, which focuses on itself and pandering to its own pleasures. But the other focuses on the things that please God, please the Holy Spirit. So simple uh, application here. Christian, friend, what do you set your mind on? What occupies your attention and your mind throughout the week? What do you concentrate on? What do you give yourself up to? One mind here leads to death. The other one leads to life and peace. Which one do you want? I think a lot of our problem in our growth as Christians is that we don't think enough. Because you are what you think. Set your mind. Set your mind on things above. On things that please God. On things that are Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind. Set your mind on them. Now, I think this is possibly harder than ever in our generation for this reason. Our minds are so full of distracting influences. You probably wake up, some of you guys, and put your headphones in or start watching something on a smartphone or an iPad or a laptop. Or There is never a moment for some people where they're not engaged in social media, not on call from a phone, or maybe you've got two phones or three phones. Your mind is just full, and there's so many things to fill the mind with. not necessarily bad things. But we don't have time to be mindful of God, to set aside the quiet time, to think on him, to go to him throughout the day. We could even learn something from our Muslim friends, you know. Five times a day, habitually, they have to set aside time and pray. And they're not praying to the living God. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. Let's make sure we set our minds on what the Holy Spirit wants. Because you're not alone. The Spirit is with you and he's in you. He wants you to turn your mind to things that please God. Because in that way you'll be increasingly freed from sin and grow to be more like Jesus. Now, finally, as well as concentrating the mind, the Spirit also annihilates. He liberates, concentrates, and annihilates. Look with me at verses 9 to 13. Um, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now listen to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, or we are debtors, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now this is interesting. What he's saying here is that we have to take part in God's work in changing us by putting things to death. It's quite violent. Now it's not a masochistic, self-hating, flagellating, sort of woe is me kind of mindset, but it is a recognition that there are patterns of sin in our lives and there's pat- there is sin clinging on to us that we need to deal with. We've got a choice in the matter. We are free agents. We can either do nothing about it and drift into it or we can take action. We can put it to death. And this means that you see your sin for what it is. You, see, you look it in the face and see it for what it is. You know, your sin was so serious that it took the Son of God to a cross. He chose it, and it broke his heart. If you could go the night before to the Garden of Gethsemane and see in this beautiful garden a few men sleeping on the ground, but in the distance, somebody who's not asleep, he's kneeling, and he's sobbing, and he's praying with, pleading with God, and pouring out his heart, and he's so distressed that he's his sweat is like drops of blood pouring off him, and he's actually in agony. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Even so, not your, my will, but your will be done. He submits himself to God's rule so that he can go to the cross, so that he can take away your sin. Now, friends, if that's what it costs Jesus Christ to, to free you, you really shouldn't go back to it. You really should join in by putting your sin on that cross as well and getting rid of it, seeing it for what it is, the hateful thing that, that, that took Jesus' life away, and resolving that I will have nothing more to do with that because it's no longer part of who I am. It's no longer part of my future, and my past is dealt with. New Testament says, put it to death. Put it to death. Use all your powers in the Holy Spirit to get rid of your sins. Sometimes we're so indulgent. We think, well, you know, I'm doing quite well on all the other things. It's just, this is my sin problem. Or we think, I'll deal with it this time. But in our heart of hearts, we know we might just go back to it. Or we know we have this habit, this attitude, this mentality that is sinful, but we just, we've given up. We don't think we can deal with it. Here it says, the Spirit has come to set you free from the flesh, give you a new mind to turn you around. So you can do it. You've got God himself living in you to change you, to make you more like Jesus Christ. Imagine that you have found, through some medical analysis, that you had gangrene in your little toe. What would you do about it? Gangrene spreads. You would, you would cut the toe off. Get rid of it to save the rest of your body. So, friends, now we've learned some things about the Holy Spirit today. We've learned that he liberates, that he concentrates, and he annihilates sin in our lives so we're going to have just a few moments of silent reflection um, because in a minute we're going to sing Father let me dedicate myself to you and then Matt's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper we want to come to the table prepared so let's just have a few moments to think Lord show me now where I'm sinning send me your spirit now and let me realize that I'm not alone in this fight and change me forever Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father.
So we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father in heaven, you've called us into your family, you've made us children. And you've given us this wonderful Holy Spirit who's here now in, our, in this room and he's in our hearts. I pray now that you would have shown us some things, you'd have shined, shone some light on our hearts and minds today, but that it wouldn't lead us to despair or even to guilt, but to freedom. So do a great work in us now. Cleanse us afresh. Empower us. Liberate us, we pray, to live more fully for your wonderful Son who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.